Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. And he's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest, music journalist Paul Morley. Pointed threats they bluff with scorn. Suicide remarks are torn. From the fool's gold mouthpiece, the hollow horn plays wasted words, proves to warn that he not busy being born is busy dying. Paul, thank you for that. We asked you, like all our guests, to choose whatever Bob couplets you wanted to, and you chose those. Any particular reason? It's all right, Matt. I'm only bleeding. Uh, it's uh, the words, language being stuffed in there, the rhythm. I mean, of many people who influenced me as a writer, I think Bob Dylan was, was up there. Just this wonderful use of language and what you could do with language, let alone the fact you could sing it. Mm. And uh, around about the time I was, you know, sort of a certain age and there was a, a live album before the flood and it was around Nixon time. And he, he did uh, It's All Right Ma on that. And uh, there was that line about, you know, sometimes even the president of the United States has to stand naked. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just about punk was about to happen. And punk, of course, demolished a lot of people. But uh, Bob stood firm. You weren't going to demolish Bob. And I was thinking Before the Flood is like a proto-punk album. Mm. Yeah, because it was, it, it was sort of like all on one level, at least when I first heard it. Uh, yeah. and, and that was sort of an interesting thing because you knew he didn't have to. He was much the band could, didn't have to do that. No, absolutely. And it was fast and it was ferocious. You got that anger uh, of the time. And I, I just swooned for his use of words and, and what you could do with words. And, uh, you know, he was always such a great writer, apart mm. from anything else, you mm. know, let alone there were lyrics. There's something triumphant about that before the flood. The, 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 the first song, you go your way and I go, oh, you. yeah. And the way it just announces itself oh. and it comes in and it's blasting away. And I've always yeah. had a. I've always been very partial to uh, the live albums mm-hmm. through thick and thin, you know, because they've been such an interesting sort of way of of monitoring the development of the career, the panorama of the career, even though often, certainly before the bootleg era, they, 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 they were a little bit erratic and, you, you know, Hard Rain wasn't as good as the bootleg Rolling Thunder. It was, mm-hmm. it was a kind of odd thing, but you got so much sort of juice and goodness out of them, the Budokan album in, Jap- in Japan, which he recorded very early on in the tour. So mm-hmm. now you hear the, the later versions, you realise they're getting it together, but it just sounded like kitsch and, and yeah. horrible and another another reason which you sometimes think he's doing on purpose that he's saying it's all over I'll never come back from this <laughs> uh, I, but I just love those live albums There's, you know, 10, 11, 12 now and yeah. uh, from the very beginning 62, 63 as he's just sort of formulating right through and it's one way of uh, gauging the journey of Dylan. Uh, well, I was just going to say, what was your uh, gateway drug to Dylan? When when did you come to Dylan? Yeah, you know what? It's it's one of those strange moments in your life that it was almost something as absurd as If Not For You by Olivia Newton-John. It was almost as absurd as David Bowie singing about Bob Dylan mm. or Mark Boland in T-Rex putting... Um, you know, a, a line about uh, Bobby, uh, you know, he's a natural born poet. He's just out of sight. Bobby's all right. Bobby's all right. In Telegram Sam. Mm. These things, a bit like Dylan when he would use, you know, T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound. Mm, mm. And you would go and check out who the yeah. hell are these people. You yeah. didn't know. They sounded interesting, but you didn't know. So in that early stage, early teens, when Bob Dylan's being mentioned, you kind of need to find out very quickly who and what he is. And within an hour or so, you, you're stuck for life. But yeah. what was the first one then? And when was it? The first... The first Dylan album you bought? Well, I I mean, it was... um, The first Dylan album I actually bought was Planet Waves. Actually, as an album when Mm. I couldn't afford many. Uh, But that's okay, you know. Even though you knew that there was so much behind, which you could then go and find out, and, and the whole history of Dylan seemed to be then, early 70s, compacted mm. in the seventy mm. and in the 60s. Mm. You, you, were, you were okay coming in where you came in. The big bonus for my age group, you know, we all arrive at Dylan, 
you know, uh, to do with when you were born. So I was born in 1957, so I, I didn't quite make it, unfortunately, to that electric period in the late 60s, nor indeed to Bob Dylan at the Manchester Free Trade Hall, mm-hmm. where he's, you know, the typical Manchester response is Judas. <laughs> so I'm only, you know, nine years old, but somehow I'm in the same area as it's happening, which I've always found quite exciting. Mm. So I came to Dylan a, a bit later, uh, uh, but very quickly in a way that you think there would be an equivalent of now, but then seemed to be easier to do. As soon as you find out an artist like Bob Dylan, even as a teenager, you want so much to find out where he's been, you go and find out. And maybe in that quest, that search, that need to find things and pay money for it comes the the, the, the loyalty you have to such an artist. Whereas now, of course, it's just a, a swipe of a button. I went to seek out the Free Trade Hall because I was in Manchester on a theatre job about three years ago. Hmm. Slightly depressed to find out it's the Radisson Blue Hotel. It is uh, now, that's is right. Now. Yeah, and of yeah. course the Sex Pistols also, 10 years later, right. had an enormous impact on, on, on Manchester by playing the same place. Yeah. There is a Bob Dylan suite, I believe, but there's not a Johnny Rotten suite. <laughs> <laughs> it was trash too many times. <laughs> yeah. What did you make of Planet Waves as the first one? I mean, it's yeah. a... Everyone is kind of odd, I suppose, unless you start with Highway 61 or something. Yeah, I, 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 I kind of immediately latched on to the things that you're going to latch on to. You're hearing figures of speech, you're hearing routines, you're hearing stick in a way, you're hearing immense sort of enigma. I'm, even instinctively, I was, I was, I was, I was understanding that. Uh, and it wasn't like, you know, you might buy an album, say, by Steeler's Wheel or something, and you shut it down fairly quickly. But you knew with Bob Dylan that, you, you, you know, something was happening and you, you got to Blonde on Blonde, you got to Highway 61 Revisited, you got to bringing it all back home very quickly. I mean, I, you know, this was um, of prime importance to me. If you, couldn't, if you couldn't afford that many albums... Over time. Yeah. So yeah. what do you remember what your second one was? Yeah, it was Blonde on Blonde. Um, because what was fascinating about Blonde on Blonde, apart from anything else, and of course the context of, of music like this is so important, not just the music itself, the imagery, the photography the sleeve mm. I mean what an extraordinary sleeve and you also realised again possibly in hindsight but I feel I felt it at the time how much that Dylan was an influence on the glam oddly enough that I was listening to yeah, at the time through Mark Ball and through David Bowie you know Sid Barrett as well mm. you know that kind of slossed Englishness that that kind of a sense of, of interpreting glamour in a different sort of way witchcraft of glamour it was coming from Dylan there's so you were piecing a, together your influences as well. There's yeah. an almost theatrical androgynous quality to Dylan in 66, isn't there? Which I guess fed into that a bit later. Yeah, you, exactly. You, you, he's beyond, you know, sex. He's beyond gender. He's beyond time and place. Beyond all those things, you're, you're feeling very quickly. And you're realising how, how people are, are interpreting him for their own ends. They're using him as an influence very quickly. And all yeah. your favourite people, you know, that you are starting to love at that point in the early 70s are essentially coming from Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is, is, is to use this awful phrase now, the lodestar. <laughs> he, he's the main man yeah. because the look of him, the mystery of him, the, the elusive nature of him, where he'd come from, you couldn't work out, the fantastic way he delivered himself in interviews, which I always loved early doors, you know, yeah. in the 60s, uh, where he was still using language in an exciting way, seems to be interviewing himself most of the time. All of this seemed to have a huge impact on on music you were liking at the time, yeah. even if not directly. You started to notice that everybody was sort of phrasing their language, their words in a song like Bob Dylan was. Yeah. You realise how much, as he would later say, that he'd wiped out Tin Pan Alley mm. because, you know, not 10 years before, you were d- interpreting other songs, as he's now rather wonderfully come back mm. to, but suddenly you were writing your own songs and, of course, this all filtered through Dylan. So the fact that we had these wonderful musicians in the early 80s, that were in the early 70s, that were singing and performing their own songs, so they were composers and 
performers. It's coming from Dylan, and they, and there was the sexiness about them. You know, there was an erotic charge about Bob Dylan that you couldn't deny. Uh, the curls, the corkscrew hair that that Sid and Bowie and Bolan had. You know, it's coming from Blonde on Blonde. The surreal force that there is in the music. You know, yeah. the way that Mark Bolan would use language. It's coming from from Bob Dylan. And at first you don't know that, and then you do, and then you realise that you're going to be following Bob Dylan for an awful long time. Even then, you knew it. And of course, the big sledgehammer for me, luckily, is a, as a point of time. If I remember rightly, there was a sense that Bob Dylan was kind of behind you in terms of the masterpieces, that, that it was all over with Blonde on Blonde, <laughs> Highway 61, <laughs> you know, and it had become New Morning and it had become Nashville Skyline. And, and then you were just at the right time. I was 18 for, you know, the one that a lot of people no doubt mentioned, Blood on the Tracks. Yeah. And, and suddenly it was the right time for me because you realised it was a work of art. And you, you, you were you're ambitious, or some people say pretentious enough, to realise that he was doing to, to song uh, uh, and voice, you know, what Picasso had done to, to painting and, and form. And, and you realised that, you knew that, and you could understand it. And you became buried in it. And it was almost like in a Dylan-esque way, you were seeing the rest of your life, even as a young person, because you could understand almost how it was going to develop. And how it was going to develop in many ways was that you would spend the rest of your life interpreting this thing. Because, you know, it was Shakespearean in, in, in a way you really could understand that it was always going to change shape. It was always going to become something else. And I just um, disappeared into it for, yeah. for quite... Well, I'm still disappeared into it, really. Did you go back as far as the folk stuff and... Yes, How I did. How do you feel about that? I did, and and I never trusted him from almost day one as a protest singer. I trusted him as being very good at playing a protest singer, but I kind of liked that as well. I could see what was going on very early, early on that mm. he that he was a he was wearing masks. He was he was you know throwing skins over his own body and yeah. becoming other creatures. He was multiplying in himself, and that 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 the the sincerity that there seemed to be in folk music was something that he was playing around with, the authenticity, uh, which has is, 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 is proved the, the sort of wrongdoing for many people that have tried to come after him. Yeah. They, they think it's about sincerity and in authenticity. It's almost about the exact opposite. It's shape-shifting. It's surrealism. It's, it's something else. It's not about protesting the times. It's about, well, some would say whining or complaining or being a bit crabby about existence itself. Mm. You know, it's, it's bigger and it's more special. And when you're a certain age and, and, and you're questing something yourself, questing, you know, searching for answers yourself, that kind of um, content, that kind of ability he has to constantly be, be protesting not necessarily the Vietnam War, but how the hell have I found myself living? <laughs> you know, it's very, it's very, it's very attractive. So I, I always like that John Byers line when, that she used in a Dylan documentary when they would ask her in the 60s if Dylan was coming on a march. And she said, no, Bob, Bob's not coming on the march. Bob, Bob never came on the marches. You know, he mm. wasn't marching. He was sending out signals that, that would be very appropriate in terms of his long-term plan to be immortal. <laughs> but, 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 but it wasn't necessarily that he was in that moment. He was, he was in other moments. Well, he's yeah. allegedly apolitical, isn't he? I and mean, this has been said a few times that he, but when he, before he met Susie Rotolo, he was, he was really not very aware of politics. And it was, it was more her influence that kind of yeah, pushed him I, I, I think the political nature of someone like, an artist like, Bob Dylan and, and a great artist, a classical artist almost. It's, it's way beyond local environment and, and local weather. Mm. I think the political side of it is is something to do with, you know, the nature of existence. It's, it's to do with, mm. 
you know, he's, he's, he's not worried about the local villains or the local currency and the currents in politics. He's worried, you know, anxious about the bigger questions that ultimately can help you sort that out. But he's somewhere else. Yeah, because I think in, in Highlands, isn't, you know, which is very weary on every level, but somebody says somebody's asking me how I'm going to vote. If I'm registered to vote. <laughs> if I'm registered to vote. And it's yeah, sort of yeah. like somebody's asking me, you know, it's, it, it might as well be flavors of ice cream. It's like it's yes. so meaningless. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. of course, you know, what he was doing with his music was, was millions of votes, you know, because it, it pointed people in what some of us might consider the right direction, you know. Yeah. And he's worn lots of different hats and <laughs> lots of identities and lots of masks. And I think the, I think the 2007 film, I'm Not There, nails that mm. really well of all these yes. different identities. Do you have... A favorite period, a favorite identity, a favorite voice. You know, I've thought you know a lot about this as a writer about music, and and one of the things that really upsets me about a certain sort of criticism is this notion that an artist goes through. You know, the, the idea that the, this album is as good as that album. It's the best since Blood on the Tracks. He's not on form and everything. And to me, the the, the work of art with Bob Dylan will never be completely. Uh, or, you know, official until he's died, which yeah. will be an incredible moment. I hope yeah. it makes the news. You never know these days. <laughs> what with the Chuckle Brothers making the news? <laughs> but it will, be, it will be truly the end of a kind of era. Yeah. Uh, and then we can work out the work of art because at the moment it kind of goes in chronological order. But as I noticed increasingly once David Bowie had died, everything sort of fits together at, at the same time and will become more apparent as centuries pass. Yeah. And so even in that, you know, that weird 80s period, which, which seemed to be the, the exiled period, mm. and he had trouble with production and he had trouble sort of trying to keep up to date with where contemporary music was, the drum sound, you know, mm. what does a record sound like in the MTV era. Even in that period, it didn't seem like you could penalise him because where he was going, and it has since proved true through the 80s, you know, when we eventually arrive in the early 90s and he does that, what appears to be a retreat, you know, the world gone wrong and those sort of yeah. pre... Yeah. where he's going back almost to find his influences, a, a, a bit like a parallel to the early 60s. You then now know that it, that goes to time out of mind yeah. and he's found himself. Now, we can't deny that if he hadn't wandered off into that strange period and he's making albums, you know, um, the, the, the Down in the Groove albums, the Empire Burlesque yeah. that, that were shockingly reviewed and shockingly hated... You feel it's a kind of underestimation of himself as an artist, needing to work out where he's going. Mm. And to get where he's going, he sometimes has to make those wrong steps. Sometimes you think they're, they're satirical as well. You get the feeling there's a few square, uh, scare quotes going on. Yeah. But I, I always love now that we can see the shape of it, that period into the, into the early 90s, and then that so-called recovery with Time Out of Mind, which then again some people at the time thought was the death album. They yeah. thought that it was yeah. all over, but of course yeah. it's the beginning yeah. of what possibly is his greatest period because within that, we have that great film, absolutely, but we also have his memoir, Chronicles, mm -hmm. which is you know all about what effects the mind has on music and what effect music has on the mind and these wonderful lines about Johnny Cash and 10,000 years of culture mm -hmm. and public enemy, horses going over the cliff yeah. and Hank Williams you know, stopping silence with his voice. It's tremendous stuff. Yeah. And he's making these great records and he's still doing the tour. The tour just picks up speed and becomes more and more fantastic and odd and peculiar and strange he's getting weirder and weirder and then he makes the Sinatra albums and he makes the pre-rock and roll albums triplicate so for me I'm actually enjoying and I'm so glad I'm around to see it a period that even though it doesn't seem to be as initially magnetic and, and, and impactful as that say that electric period in the late 60s with the Blonde on Blondes and the Highway mm. 61s and the bringing it all back mm. home for me it's just as fascinating when it all fits together you know it'll be a it'll be just as much an important part of the puzzle did you you were mentioning the 80s 
and those albums were very badly reviewed and sold badly and he looked depressed and, and they looked <laughs> terrible. The album covers were terrible. Yes. Did you stick with him? Did you stick with him through Empire Burlesque and were you were you still on board? Did you think these were not his best work or did you think he was his best work but bad production or what, what did you I, make I, of them? I, to be honest, I was wandering off myself into an early 80s zone that didn't necessarily involved a lot of the modern Dylan work. So a bit like David Bowie, to be honest, after Let's Dance. They all, they're both... It wasn't a great time, was it? No, because I think record production was taking such a strange mm. shift. And, and mm. even when Bob Dylan does recover with Daniel Lanoy, mm. there's still some dispute, even up to time out of mind, whether this is necessarily good, that somehow the production, as if it hadn't always dominates the artist because Dylan himself sort of produces himself to an extent but understands the nature of the recording studio and how much that contributed to the songs as they were fixed on record. Uh, and, and, and I guess there's a tremendous confusion in, in the 80s with the, the, the computers and the drum machines mm. and the sound of pop at that time. You couldn't, you know, in the, in the 1960s, his, his competition became the Beatles, became the Beach Boys, you know, became the Rolling Stones, these incredible artists who were still in a, in a fairly primitive recording studio context. And you could get the excitement of a track and it still kind of connected to the blues. It connected to rockabilly. It connected to hillbilly and country in a way that Dylan liked. By the 80s, that, that, that was a very difficult thing to do mm. without being completely dismissed as, as old-fashioned, which would have been a, an arrow through his heart many times because he was the most new-fashioned of all. So I, I was always technically fascinated with the trouble he was having. Mm. And back then, you, ne you never really believed that anyone was going to keep going, you know, because it, it, there was no real precedent for mm. it in terms of uh, as an artist. Mm. Uh, but, but you realise over time that, of course, he is an artist. He's up there, you know, with your Mozarts, really, because it's all through his life. Mm. Whereas most rock and pop artists, it's a very small point. Apart from their performance, the actual songs and the immensity of those songs and the impact of those songs, often a four or five-year-old period, the Beatles, the Stones, it's mm. kind of over very quickly. With Dylan, you realise he's, he's, he's going to come back. Uh, I loved the, the pre-folk ones in the, in the early 90s, you know, The World Gone Wrong. Mm. Mm. Because that seemed to be a kind of genuinely surreal stasis. You, d you still didn't know that he was again going to do... I, I hate mm. the comeback idea because it, it never seems a comeback. It's just a, a continuation. Would anybody else, do you think, have been allowed to stay there? Like those albums, <laughs> you know, in the 80s. I, I saw a documentary recently, one of those ones you can find on Amazon uh, Prime. And it yeah. was just... It was the 80s. It was the documentary mm. about the 80s. And it was uh, a bunch of guys. I don't know if you've seen it. But I, w I was amazed at how many badly reviewed and uh, uh, fl flop albums he had. Like... So many, one after another after another. Yes. The, would anyone else but Bob Dylan have been retained by their record company? Well, I suppose in, in a way even a, a, a post-80s record company would have realized, and many artists did get dropped, many artists did have trouble, but I guess with Dylan, a record company would have instinctively understood it would be like dropping God. And somebody else it, it would snap monolithic, and, yes. Yeah. You know, it was, it was mightier than, than it appeared. And, and, and it was such a weird period in terms of the arrival of the compact disc and the replacing of vinyl, mm. which vinyl is, is Dylan's canvas to an extent. So I think mm. there's a, an, a modification. You must, you must expect that he's working out what the hell, you know, the, the, the canvas has gone now. I've got no canvas, <laughs> effectively, because yeah. CDs weren't the, weren't the canvas. Yeah. And so I, I, I guess you're not going to drop him. And I guess his relationship with, with CBS is so sort of, you know, tight that it would have, as many artists were being dropped, you, you couldn't drop Bob Dylan. 
Not not least as well, I guess, because those songs that he had written in the 60s, even if they were the, were the last he wrote in the 70s, were the last classics, they were going to last. They were clearly going mm. to last. So it would, it would have been an act of, um, well, you, you would have been a Judas to, to have dropped him. Yeah, no, I guess they, they really, because I, I picked up uh, Empire Burlesque the other day, which I, I didn't put it on. So I think I've only listened to it once or twice. And the, the actual CD, you know, the, the, the picture on the front is a man, you know, just wearing the world's worst jacket ever with the world's worst hair ever, yeah. looking horribly depressed. He's just yeah. sort of... And then on the back, it's just him, a, a grainy shot of him drunk out of his mind, but not in an interesting way, just well, looking it, awful and ugly and yes, worn out. I, I often think that's it's a, like a cry for help or a, something. A, a, a kind of a confirmation of where his mind is in a way that the very vivid record sleeves that came before... You know, we're, we're, we're showing attention to detail. You know, the, the mm. attention to detail he showed to his words, to his voice, etc. He's almost mm. admitting and confessing that maybe not so much attention to detail here, but hang on. You know, I'm, I, I've got, I've got, to, I've got to go down this path to find mm. the way back. But and also, there's some good. You, you um, uh, Luke turned me on to uh, Thea Gilmore's version of uh, "I Remember You." Yeah. I didn't realize. I didn't even recognize it. I didn't realize that it was on Empire Burlesque. It's terrific. It's a. Mm. It's a melodic and beautiful and affecting. So the song. It's a great song. But yeah. I missed it because because of, of everything else. Of and everything I, and, else. And definitely people more and more come to the songs that seem buried in this, you know, depressed, chaotic yeah. 80s period because mm. he himself as a writer, the lyrics are still kind of doing what they're doing. They're still telling his story, his stories. That he's, he's still wearing masks. He's still moving. He's still mm. working. He's still thinking. But, but unfortunately, because of the way we look at popular music through context and through fashion, yeah. it seems to be that, that he's, he's disappeared into the dark ages. Uh, by the time all that had broken down, and to, to an extent by the late 90s, it kind of had. It was the beginning of where all music happens at once. It was the beginning of, you know, computer era mm-hmm. where that level of chronology is broken down. And Dylan, of course, is, is going to be absolutely exceptional at exploiting that because he was never about the chronology of the fashion anyway. <laughs> so he can start to exist with everyone else at the same time and stand out because, of course, he is the standout artist. Mm-hmm. When was the last time he surprised you? <laughs> well, to be honest, today, really, because obviously I've been packing Dylan into my head today, which was be- has been incredible. It's taken a few hours and I- I've only got, you know, scratched the surface of the surface of mm. the surface. But I've been spending a bit of time today catching up. And he was constantly surprising me in, in terms of when I was uh, working out what, for a start, what lyrics I would read out at mm. the beginning. Mm. There was also uh, sometimes, uh, I almost did it as my lyric, in fact, the fantastic ways that he, he begins uh, some of the concerts in 1966 when he's being booed. Mm. And there was a great one somewhere, I think it might have been the Albert Hall, where he basically says, you know, you don't have to agree with what I'm doing, you don't have to even like it, you know, uh, but just, just let me get, you know, basically just let me get on with it. I don't, yeah. I, I, I don't really care what you think, you mm. know. And I, I kind of I was surprised by that. I'd never come across that before because I must admit the 36 album box set of 1966 tour I haven't yet made all the way through, as much as I know I should for completest sake. Oh, it's wonderful! It's have so you good. made it all yeah. the way through? Have you? A couple of times, yeah. I've heard yeah. Cardiff is the best. But. Cardiff is very good. <laughs> Birmingham's very good. There's a, there's a there's a moment, and I, this this might interest you in, in the sort of the punk arena. There's a there's a moment in the middle of Ballad of a Thin Man in Birmingham where he says nobody has any respect and he oh, spits yes, out yes, the second yes, syllable of respect. 
like no, it's no, 1976. It's I, fantastic. I always love the way that the audience took control of him as if they alone knew, which of course then led to lots of problems when he would re- radically rearrange the hits, which I adored. You yeah. know, the idea that people didn't know he played Like a Rolling Stone until four songs later. Yes. He abandoned yeah. all the <laughs> melody. He, he was basically acknowledging that, that there was never a fixed moment for this song mm. because it const- continually changed his shape. And also purposefully unravelling his music. I think that's something else he was doing in the early 90s. He was saying, you think you know me? Yes. I'm going to remove the thread out of all of these songs, watch the bits fall to the floor, pick them up again, rebuild them, and let's see who's still with me. You know? That's right. And, and he kind of wound them up, the songs themselves, and asked for them to fight back somehow. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, uh, but also the surprise thing, I was listening to Triplicate, you know, and at the end of Triplicate, he sings a song, I think it's from 1929 by Jerome Kerr, or the lyrics are certainly by Jerome mm-hmm. Kerr, you know, Why Was I Born? And it's, you know, why was I born? Why am I living? What do I get? What am I giving? You know, and that's from 1929. And he makes it a Bob Dylan song. And, and, and to an extent, you know, it's, it's, it's so true that this stuff he'd eradicated, i.e. The, the Tin Pan Alley lyricist. He's mm. basically going back and uh, acknowledging that it still fits his life. So that, that surprised me a little bit. I Speaking of, the, got of that, that this era, it seems to me that he's been shaving sp- slices off his voice for his entire life. So he's gotten to the point where there's not much left. And he's singing these songs with these beautiful lyrics. Mm. But is... Do you think... I I bought Triplicate because Mm. it got great reviews. Mm. And I haven't made it to the end of it. I, I find it too painful to listen to his actual vocal the quality. I thought, I thought it was interesting to take on, first of all, Sinatra and then these songs with this voice, you know, the mutilate, mm. mutilated angel voice, the, 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 it being shattered into atoms. But on the other hand, in terms of timing and intensity and understanding and appreciation and mm. musical history, yeah. it seemed totally logical that he would do Sinatra or be Sinatra inhabit Sinatra, inherit Sinatra, and that he would take on these these classics that traditionally require a so-called conventional voice. And, of course, it always plays back to that notion that, you know, Bob Dylan couldn't sing. Mm. And, and I always remember saying to lots of people, you know, if you think Bob Dylan can't sing, you're mad. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, because... But he, you don't have ears. You, 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 don't have, you don't have a head, you don't yeah. have a mind, you, you don't understand. Uh, and, and the process of his... Uh, uh, the stories of his voice have, have endlessly fascinated me, really, because the way they change and where it began uh, and the idea that, you know, theoretically he begins impersonating, you know. So as much as he says that Cezanne is an influence on him as much as Woody Guthrie, basically he's sounding like Woody Guthrie, sounds like a, a mimicry. Uh, and, and then he seems to need that to get to a certain stage of uh, attention for people to pay attention to him. And then he's, 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 he's constantly changing his voices, you know, mm. and... Um, I started writing about this about five years ago, the number of voices he'd had. And back then, I'd got up to about 10 voices, you know. And what was interesting about each voice, you know, from the folk days through the electric and then moving into the early 70s and then the mid-70s and, and then the eight of the gospel and then beyond into time out of mind as it starts to fall apart, is that all the voices he has somehow still have the voice voices mm. before it. They're still there mm, yeah. if you can hear them. You know, it's, it's like some kind of weird host's that he has inside the voice. There's many ghosts almost. There's mm. many, many Dylans inside the voice. And that process of it disintegrating and, it, and almost him allowing it to disintegrate, almost as a prediction of the final moment, it just completely shatters, which it will. I just thought it was just so courageous and so wonderful. And it was so moving. You know, when I go and see Bob Dylan now and I, I try as much as I can for however many hundreds of pounds it's going to cost me to get in the first two rows, and you realise he can't move much. You know, he's, yeah. he's sort of rooted to the spot his eyes though 
my God, there's millions of Dylans in the eyes because he's looking, he's alert, he's watching, he's watching. If you lift your hand up, he notices, which is very intimidating. But, we, we saw him wow. a couple of years ago at, at Wembley, and, and mm. one thing that I did notice was the fact, well, the, 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 the gimmick or the thing he was doing was he would cross the stage to get to the old-fashioned mic to do yes. The, the, yes. the American songbook, yes. and then he would cross back. Yes. But yes. I noticed that whenever he, when he was at the old-fashioned mic, he could not stop moving. Mm. I, he would just be balancing back and forth on his on sure. his toes yeah. and i thought i i realized that bob dylan can't stop moving even when he's supposed to be standing yeah. still like yes. he just i think he's probably well whenever you see him interviewed and everything he just he never stops well, and, and also his mind and his thinking never stops which mm. i think has sometimes overwhelmed people mm. and and overwhelmed passers-by if you like rather than the aficionados yeah uh, and that restlessness, absolutely. You feel it, it, it as he's performing, even in his modern sort of now static nature. He's, he's, he's so restless. He's so alert. He's on high alert all the time for yeah. any, anything that passes by that might be of use. He has I, so I love, much control still, doesn't he? Even though you think we've written him off, you think he's, he's, he's past it maybe this year, but he still knows what he's doing. Yeah, I often think what it must be like to actually be that self-conscious about yourself as well and know where you've been and know what you've done. And know you know what it all means to people. Know what it means to you, and the fact that it's coming to its end. I mean, it is an extraordinary. Oh, I sometimes sort of think the, the, the worst thing in the world would be to wake up and know you're Bob Dylan. <laughs> that that split second <laughs> where it's, so you know, and and not just knowing that you're Bob Dylan, but because he is so sensitive, he is. It's it's like I when I used to do my in my drug days, you know, when I was peaking on drugs, <laughs> I imagine Bob Dylan being like that all the time. Yeah. Just everything, every little crack, everything has a meaning. Absolutely. It must be relentless. relentless it must be, yes. He must have decided somewhere around, I don't know if you heard the story that on the final night of the 66 tour, when the Beatles came to the Albert Hall, he went back to the hotel and ran a bath. Um, and Robbie Robertson, I think, tells this story that he had to go in and rescue him because he was about to drown. Yeah, yeah. And I think... Sort of maybe a certain Bob Dylan did die that day, you know, because then maybe he decided, you know what, I'm not going to burn no, out. Yeah, I'm going to go the long game. I often think that in terms of also the motorbike, um, you yeah. know, mm. uh, time where you know artists of his caliber in rock and pop, their late life often means they're not even thirty. Mm. In terms of the Hendrixes and the, and the Morrisons and the Nick Drakes and the Sandy Dennis, you know, mm. the late life is 30, 35, 40. Yeah. And there is a world where it could have been Dylan that had that, that sort of late life uh, end. Mm. And we, we're now talking about, uh, uh, you know, someone who was a casualty. And the, and the decision to carry on, you know, being overwhelmed by your thinking and your thoughts and knowing that you're Bob Dylan, you know, everyone is going to be saying forever and ever, not as good as Blonde on Blonde, not as good as Blood on the Tracks, mm. especially in the 80s, you know, where people were desperately, all the fans were desperately trying to find some clue that something was as good as since uh, Blood on the Tracks and weren't, weren't mm. kind of, it must have been very strange, but also as, as a life. And I guess I always think of his life as being the work of art mm. and, the, and, the, and, the, and the nature of him wanting to leave behind so much and impressing himself on it so much. So even when people say, oh, he's just so crabby, he's always complaining, he gets himself in situations just so he can write songs about it. It seems to underestimate the, the, the love and tenderness and, and brilliance of his mind that is illuminating, the, you know, illuminating everybody else's lives, which is a, a kind of weird sacrifice, oddly enough, you know. And, and even you, you sometimes wonder if that stuff in the 80s also was a consequence of him being suddenly a rock star millionaire because mm. he kind of acted like a rock star millionaire a little in the 80s, you know, marrying, you know, he's backing singers and he's mm. having a superstar group, the Travelling Wilburys. It was all a little bit mm. odd, but then maybe he was flirting with that. Or what's that like then, to be that kind of rock star? Because maybe once he didn't think he'd make it, you know. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't mean that he's a nice person just because he's Bob <laughs> Dylan. It, you know, it doesn't mean that he makes good decisions. Because it's the energy, actually, Dylan. isn't it? I always find that interesting as well. Like that kind of, you know, I don't think he's very nice, really. Uh, to me, it's the energy he's released is is what we're considering. Because I always thought that, thought that was interesting about Time Out of Mind and Beyond is that he's not really talking about his personal life now. He's talking about the myths of Dylan and the mm. masks of Dylan mm. and the performance sort of scandal that it's been. He's not giving anything away about who and what he is and his private life and and therefore when we make judgments about whether he is or isn't a nice person or whatever he is we have no idea no. which has been the wonderful no. kind of camouflage of it all you know the man who confesses the most admits the most says the most in the last 50 years we have no idea what he's really like occasional glimpses Occasional ratings of the dustbin and, and this, that and the other. Stories about him wandering off into the night and being arrested as a tramp. But we have no idea. No, exactly. I mean, I, I have to, we, we have to start uh, winding down. But um, I have to say that uh, what, when I first heard Dylan, uh, unlike you, I didn't think I'm, I must hear more. He, he scared the shit out of me. <laughs> and I was, I was the right age. I was, yeah. I was like 15. And I heard uh, Rainy Day Women uh, as a single coming out yeah. of uh, my dad's car radio. And I said, who, who, who's th-? I thought, who's that? Mm. Because I, I, that th- I felt like it threatened my whole life. They sounded like they were having a good time in a way that I, I didn't. I, it scared me, and mm-hmm. I, I, I was scared until Nashville Skyline came. <laughs> I, I really was. But I, and then, I, and I realized that at some point years later, I mean, my pro- progress through Dylan has been very slow, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, but that he was saying, everyone can, everyone can do this. Everyone can be a thing. Yeah. Just. Be whatever thing you need to be, and that took me a long time. I just I was too timid sure. to get into Dylan. Dylan, I could I, I now adore him, and I've worked through the whole catalog. But uh, I, that's a great gift to give to the people that's who are right. willing to hear it. it that's oh, why yeah. I was t- touched by that song. Why am I? Why was I born? You know, where he says, mm. "What what what do I get?" Which some people think is Dylan. You know, what do I get? But actually, what am I giving? I, I know what you mean about the scared, you know, because uh, I always thought that tremendous order almost, uh, that command in Rolling Stone, you know, how, how does it feel? Mm-hmm. Was, was not necessarily about a, a, a doomed love affair. It was not necessarily to, but it, to everybody. How does it feel? You know, yeah. really, you need to tell us how does it, you all need to be as good as me at expressing how it feels. Yeah. And, and ask. Yeah. Ask yourself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I could go on forever, but Easily. I think uh, sadly, Paul, yeah. we have to. Wrap it up. We're going to have to actually, if you'll come back, we're going to have to have you back because mm. we, I feel like we said it's begun. a 36 disc box set. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to do the outro now. Thank you, uh, Paul Morley. Thank I'm you. just going to put on the cans. This is the end of the show. Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Buenos Aires suite at VoiceOver Soho Studios. Engineered by John Green and produced by Peter Morris. We're on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Music is by Sam Hare. At times I think there are no words but these to tell what's true. And there are no truths outside the gates of Eden.